about two months after the Buddha attained enlightenment, which can be defined as total freedom from suffering. About two months after he attained total freedom from suffering, he gave his first Dharma discourse in a place called Sarnath in the Deer Park there to um, six of the ascetics he had been practicing with for about six years, practicing rather extreme ascetic practices. He began turning the wheel of Dharma and what has come to be called the middle path or the middle way that's free from the extremes of self-deprecation or self-mortification and the other extreme of self-indulgence. And one of the things he said uh, in that first discourse was that I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddha taught that suffering is intrinsic to the human condition, or at least that until we wake up to the true nature of ourself, of life, that suffering is intrinsic to the human condition. When the Buddha said that, uh, I teach suffering, he wasn't um, about to tell us the best way to suffer, or uh, he wasn't recommending that we suffer. He was just simply pointing out the truth of his existence. And he was pointing out that until we look directly, until we look honestly and directly, at the reality of suffering in our lives, that we really, until then, we aren't able to take the necessary steps to free ourselves from it. There are a number of different aspects to suffering, but I think that the, probably the most deeply pervasive and probably also the most subtle aspect of suffering is the fact that it's also ignored a lot, by the way, is the fact that um, the truth that, the fact that everything in this universe everything in this whole universe comes into being through the combination of an enormous amount of conditions, an actually infinite amount of conditions. So, with that truth, we can understand that suffering is a conditional aspect of life. It's not an absolute Our misunderstanding often of suffering, our experience in the midst of it, takes it to be something very solid, 
something very permanent, something very much in place, and we identify very strongly with it. We see it as something solid, separate, a happening that is ourself. I am this sadness. I am a sad person. I am a fearful person. Where I live in New Mexico, I live pretty high up in the mountains in New Mexico. And during the rainy season, there are lots of rainbows that appear. Huge arcs of rainbows, sometimes double rainbows, that I've had the good fortune of seeing, seeing seeing them from all the way through from the bottom, whatever the bottom is, to the other bottom of the arcs of the rainbows. Sometimes two or three times in an afternoon during the rainy season. And rainbows appear because of a whole set of particular conditions coming together. There's the perfect amount of moisture in the air. And the light, the way that the light is, the angle of the light, is just right. And I, or anyone else who's uh, seeing this, happens to be in the right place at the right time. And happens to be looking in the right direction. All of these conditions coming together, a rainbow seen, And it changes very, very quickly. In seconds, it changes, disappears, dissolves. All of life, including ourself, is like a rainbow. Merely a changing set of conditions that are totally interrelated, and empty in and of themselves. And it's very, very obvious with rainbows. But it's not so obvious for us most of the time with these solidly appearing bodies, this solidly appearing phenomena, physical phenomena, mental phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, The suffering of trying to grasp onto some appearing thing, some appearing experience, some appearing state of mind, some appearing phenomena, and identifying with it as ours, as me, as mine, as I, and solidifying this in our mind as some solid, lone, all by itself, real, unchanging entity. Could be an idea, an opinion, a belief, an emotional state, bodily phenomena. Grasping on, identifying, 
solidifying around this rainbow-like experience, whatever it is, will inevitably lead to suffering. It's inevitable. Because the nature of things, the way of things, the natural laws that operate in this universe, the unfolding of life as it is, will get in the way of our solidifying and will frustrate us, frustrate our efforts in trying to grasp on or hold on or solidify this or that, whatever it is. A few years ago I um, told a friend that I was going to give a talk on suffering and she looked at me kind of mockingly a little bit with a little smile on her face and opened her eyes really wide and said, who, me? And then we both laughed. Liberation from suffering isn't based on anything imaginary. It's not based on anything pretended. It's not based on anything that's hoped for. It's not based on anything philosophized about. It's not based on anything avoided. And it's not based on anything ignored. In the truth, the truth of the matter is we can't be free from something that we don't see. We can't be free from something that we ignore. In the clarity of the Buddha's amazing understanding and teaching, let me, let me preface it by saying we have this uh, saying in English, ignorance is bliss. Well, in the clarity of the, of the Buddha's understanding and teaching, ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance is simply ignorance. Bliss is bliss. Seeing clearly. Ignorance providing the fertile ground for delusion to sprout. But fortunately, fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only impermanent conditioned states of suffering. They're not our true nature. They're just one of the hues of the rainbow. We can open our eyes, we can open the eyes of mindfulness, we can shine the light of, of awareness, supported by the heart of compassion, supported by the heart of loving kindness, and see all of the hues, including the darkness, and call it as the writer May Sarton said, seasonal, not harsh or strange. And another uh, source of wisdom that I found one day, you never really know where your next uh, piece of wisdom is going to come from. This comes from Dolly Parton. (laughs) She says, if you want to be a rainbow, you have to put up with the rain. I think she knows that well, actually. So this evening I'd like to spend a little bit of time exploring with you the faces, some of the faces of the rainbow, some of the darker maybe faces of the rainbow, and some of the lighter 
phases of the rainbow also. Hues, I should say, of the rainbow. Towards the end of the Buddha's long night of sitting under the Bodhi tree, and after Mara, who in this, these teachings is the personification of all of the dark and potentially obstructive forces in the mind, after Mara had let fly at the Buddha all of the poison arrows of delusion, of desires, of distractions, of aversions, None of these arrows stuck. So Mara finally shot the last arrow at Siddhartha, hoping that this one would really stick in firmly. This last poison arrow, the poison arrow of doubt. And Mara said to the Buddha, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here, how and where you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? And this about-to-be Buddha, with his great deep confidence and his lion-like fearlessness and his amazing grace, he just simply reached down with his right hand and touched the earth with his fingertips letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was completely defeated, never again to appear to the Buddha. And the truth of the matter is that it's our right, just as it was for the Buddha. It's our right to be sitting where and how we are and how we do. It's our right to freedom simply because we're here on this earth, simply because we're alive. It's our inalienable right. I wanted to speak just a little bit about doubt. It's come up in... um, various ways, a little bit in the morning uh, discussions and in interviews. The root of doubt is really based in fear. Doubt is a contraction based in fear. Fear in the guise of doubt. And it's interesting to me uh, that Doubt, self-doubt particularly, in the Buddhist understanding and Buddhist psychology, is part of what's called conceit. Conceit in the Buddhist understanding is not just mostly what we think of as arrogance or a feeling better than. It is that, this attitude of better than, hope, desire to be the best, to become even better. But it's also, conceit is less than, these feelings of less than, self-doubt, fear of being the worst, not being good enough. 
it's also the experience of feeling the same as. Because better than, less than, and the same as are all comparing mind. We're still comparing. We're not just being. And I find that very interesting and actually very helpful. There's um, an amazing prayer that I got in the mail in a particular um, publication a couple of years ago. It's a prayer of Mother Teresa's. And uh, I'd like to share it with you in relation to um, conceit in all of its aspects. And this is a prayer that she, as I understand it, this is a prayer that was her practice, one of her primary practices. This person that um, many people think of as a saint. And I'll read it just the way it came to me. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being calumniated, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. She didn't leave anything out. (laughs) And rather than, uh, sometimes when I've read that, people moan, you know, Oh, a saint still. (laughs) I have a lot of work to do, someone said. (laughs) It's an inspiration, really. It really can be an inspiration. Being with fear isn't easy. And so sometimes we actually protect ourselves with doubt. Sometimes this might be skillful in that we're not strong enough, ready, to really face the fear. But as we do get stronger and stronger through seeing more and more clearly, with a very patient, very loving, very compassionate heart for ourself, we then can begin to open to the fear. We can begin to not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by fear, not shut off to the unknown, shut off to the boundless vastness of possibility. As we get stronger through seeing more clearly, we actually can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it's not something solid. Know that it comes and it goes. Know that it's not who we are. I am not a fearful person. Fear comes, fear goes we can begin to know that it doesn't need to run our life. We can begin to really know that it doesn't need to take us over. We can begin to lose the fear of fear itself and begin to see it as one of the hues of the rainbow. Begin to look it in the eye. There's a very uh, short quote from 
a Native American author, Scott Mamaday. It's called The Fear of Botali. Botali rode easily among his enemies, once, twice, three and four times, and all who saw him were amazed, for he was utterly without fear, so it seemed. But afterwards he said, Certainly I was afraid. I was afraid of the fear in the eyes of my enemies. It doesn't mean that we might not feel fear, but we can look it in the eye. A Dharma friend of mine and a student in our our, uh, Tao Sangha died of AIDS-related complications um, about a year and a half ago. And he often talked about the virus as being his friend, being his ally in awakening. He said that the virus was his inspiration to wake up and live, to really live with awareness right now, moment to moment, in and out of very difficult and very beautiful experiences in the midst of his very deep, deep commitment to understanding the nature of things. During the last year, he was a writer, and during the last year of his life, he wrote an article and this, was just, this is just a sentence from that article. He said, AIDS is not my condition. It's the human condition. It's the gift that has taught me about impermanence. Towards the end, very end of his life, it was a great privilege to be with him, especially during the last two weeks. He had done so much work, so much practice, so much had unwound. And he said that there were many periods of time during the last year of his life, with all of the incredible difficulties that he was living with, that he felt happiest, most contented, most at ease with himself and with with things than he ever had in his whole life. It's a great teaching. He was a great teacher for all of us that had the privilege to be around him. Each of us, every single one of us, know all the various faces of aversion, all the various hues of aversion. This this man um, lived with... Fear. He lived with anger. He lived with sadness. He lived with hatred daily. And we don't know when our death will happen, but we can be certain, actually, that it'll happen and that it could happen in any moment. My friend, my student, he lived with this reality every single day. His body informed him. His heart informed him his mind, and his mind touched all of the various hues of anger, fear, sadness, hatred, and joy. Each one of us, as I said, knowing all of these also. As we begin to investigate 
emotional states of mind. So we begin to see them clearly. We begin to know quite directly, at times anyways, that they're based on our dislike of some aspect of our experience. We often experience anger or irritation or fear towards something, an object that's very present, very close to us. Sometimes towards an object or uh, an experience that's not so close to us. Sometimes we experience great sadness or fear or anger over past events that are long, long gone and there's nothing we can do about anymore. And amazingly, we can get enraged, we can get terrified, we can become grief-stricken over something that hasn't even happened yet, something that we imagine might happen. There's a, a, a story that uh, is often used uh, in, uh, as a teaching story. I'm sure part of it's true and part of it's whatever it is, but it's about a monk who lived in a cave. And he was a, a very skillful painter. And it's said that he spent many, many years painting a picture of a tiger on the wall of his cave. And he finally finished it. And he sat back and he sat and looked at his painting. And he looked and he looked and he became so frightened of his painted tiger that he scared himself to death. (laughs) I think... uh, We do that in ways also. To practice, to understand, we need to be able to come very close, very, very close, and to investigate our experience without pushing it away, without pulling away from it, without desiring it to be different. So it's important to learn how to work with these states of mind, these states of body, when they're what is present in the field of our experience, so that they're not merely hindrances to our practice, hindrances to our life, hindrances to our growth in our spiritual development. The most direct way of working with, practicing with these states is to be mindful of them, to make them the object of our growing, strengthening mindfulness. Working with these forces, practicing with these forces, these energies, can actually become the great source of energy and insight. We can learn to directly observe anger, fear, sadness, strong desires, doubt, and begin to understand how they operate in the body, how they operate in the mind, the heart. Emotional states actually are very clearly reflected in the body as various sensations when we can directly open to experiencing them. 
We don't have to struggle or fight with these forces to overcome them. In fact, that doesn't really work anyways. Mindfulness, as I mentioned this morning in the discussion, it's an amazing tool, seemingly almost magic. And it's a great, great protection. With awareness, with mindful focus of attention, we can actually begin to allow these strong energies to teach us the nature of things, to teach us their particular characteristics, to teach us how they operate, to teach us their laws, to teach us the conditions that they operate in. And we also begin to see the universal characteristics of the way of things. They're very strong teachers. We can actually learn to experience the extremes of these energies without getting caught up or caught by them or swept away or overcome by them. This is a poem by David White speaks about this in a particular way. It's called The Well of Grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning down through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. I follow this with another poem called Crying by Galway Canal. Crying only a little bit is no use. You must cry until your pillow is soaked. Then you can get up and laugh. Then you can jump in the shower and splash, splash, splash. Then you can throw open your windows and ha ha, ha ha. And if people say, hey, what's going on up there? Ha ha, sing back. Happiness was hiding in the last tear. Ha ha, I wept it. Ha ha. I think those are the small round coins shimmering. The ha ha's in the last tear. In the seemingly magic of mindfulness, in this paying of, a, of an extraordinary kind of attention, a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting attention to the present moment's experience. There's the possibility in our experience of body, of mind, of heart, the possibility in any moment for the transformation of the energies of fear, anger, desire, sadness, transformation into the liberated energies of compassion, wisdom. Anger without the contracted, self-centered quality, self-referencing identification that's often inherent in anger. Without that, anger transforming into a mirror-like wisdom. Desire, the mind of 
attachment of strong grasping, becoming the wisdom of discriminating awareness, arrogance and self-recrimination, the, the conceit, comparing mind, both of these energies based in fear that, and keep, that keep us bound and keep us caught, can become, transform, become the wisdom of equality. And sadness, deep sadness, transforming into the wisdom of the heart of compassion. There's a deep and quiet joy that begins to pervade our lives with the occasional and then more and more pervasive transformation of the energies, these strong energies, fear, anger, sadness, arrogance, self-recrimination, grasping. Another poem. Poetry sometimes distills things down for me, so I like to read it in Dharma Talks. This is a poem by Wendell Berry. I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirrings become quiet around me like circles in water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. Looking mindfully at doubt, fear, anger, strong desire, sadness, restlessness, irritation, all the various flavors of these strong energies. Looking at them mindfully when they arise, observing any one of them as we have the breath, as we have observed the breath or are learning to observe the breath, sound, sensations in the body, the possibility of giving a very clear, full attention. What is anger? Attachment, desire, sadness. How does it feel in the body? What parts of the body are affected by it? What precisely are the sensations? How does it feel in the heart? How does it feel in the mind? Are we at ease? Are we agitated? Are we open? Are we contracted? Then watch and see what happens. What happens to it? These so-called difficulties, which there's not one human being that doesn't experience these energies, these so-called difficulties in our practice, in our life, are maybe sometimes our strongest teachers. They have the potential for being very powerful teachers. I'd like to take just a few minutes to look at 
grasping, clinging, desire, attachment. These states of mind, these energies, often defining what we think we need in order to be contented, what we think we need in order to be at ease in our life. And a lot of the time we live our life projecting our hopes and our dreams of fulfillment on some object, some kind of future that we imagine, what we want to become, how we want to be seen, how we want to be related to or not related to or not seen. Mother Teresa's prayer to me really um, speaks this very clearly, really attends to this. Desire, grasping, attachment actually creates a kind of separation. It actually does the opposite of what we're most deeply wanting. It creates a kind of divisiveness. It creates a kind of duality, a separation. Desire is a perfectly natural human experience. I mean, it's what brought us all here. (laughs) It's when we're caught, when we're unaware, when we're not mindful, not present, not aware, when we're caught in desires, when we're on automatic, how driven are we by our desires? It's a really good question to ask yourself every now and then. How driven am I by my desires? It's not that we don't have them, that we'll never have them. We'll always have desires. But how driven are we? How aware are we? How conscious are we? Or how unaware are we? I had an experience, a very simple kind of mundane experience uh, a few summers ago that really, um, because of my, I was teaching a retreat and I was very, uh, quite present and really interested. There was tremendous interest in, in how it works. So I hadn't planned this, but I was walking through these gorgeous gardens in this retreat center in New Mexico. And I, I love flowers and I love the smell of flowers. So I leaned down and smelled this exquisite flower that had an exquisite smell, and I enjoyed it. I couldn't stay there forever. I had other things to do, other places to go. So I walked on. But I noticed that my mind and my heart was kind of pulling me back. I mean, I didn't go back, but this sweet smell of the flower. My, I was going on to the next thing, but my whole being was leaning into the experience that had already passed. Very pleasant experience. And there was a tension now 
the pleasant was gone. There was this tension, that this grasping, wanting, and it wasn't uh, a pleasure. I think that we um, quite often mistakenly perceive this tension as pleasant. It happens very, very quickly in relation to pleasant experience. And it's a very deep and very pervasive habit. And I think that most of us, most of the time, are not at all clear in what is actually happening in our relationship to the experience until we begin to see it really clearly. So this experience of the sweet smell of the flower is already over. And I'm still grasping onto it, the memory of it, clinging to it, wanting it, wanting it back, wanting it again, wanting more of it, imagining it, fantasizing about it. So what was just a moment before, a moment of pleasantness, is no longer pleasant. Caught in this grip of grasping, of strong desire. It's, it's a habit that, if, as we actually begin to see it, a friend of mine says, seeing, uh, seeing is relieving. <laughs> it's true. As we actually begin to see more clearly, there's relief. Relief is possible. It happens. The Buddha talked about, he described suffering actually as a burning. And he talked about the eye is burning, the ear is burning, the tongue is burning, touch is burning. This suffering of desire, this suffering of wanting is a burning. And at one point when I was thinking about this, I'd read it and heard it, and I realized that in English we have these expressions. I have a burning desire. I'm burning with desire. We know it burns. <laughs> and burning isn't, uh, it's a suffering. But the fact is that until we actually become to know the nature of it, we're caught by it. Until we actually can open to the experience of it, as it really is, we're trapped, we're caught, we're imprisoned by it. And we misunderstand. So how prevalent, how pervasive, how driven are you by your desires, even for the smell of a flower? Seeing clearly, being, being so present to the moment without grasping on to the experience of the moment is really about letting the great undoing begin, the great unwinding of our karmic predicaments.
the conditioned filters through which we suffer. It's about resting in the deep silence, resting in the boundless, deep spaciousness, and paying attention, paying an extraordinary kind of attention in the midst of letting life live through us. Sometimes in the midst of extreme situations, we might be acutely present, very clearly aware. All of our mental faculties, our physical presence, really, truly present in the moment, with nothing of the past, nothing of the future, clouding the clear presence. Extremes may be wonderful, beautiful, like when we first fall in love or seeing something exquisite such as a sunset or some very intense experience, sexual experience or the extremes of athletic competition or extremes can be very difficult. Someone very close to us, our child or our partner or a parent or ourselves are very ill hurt, suffering greatly. In the midst of many kinds of extremes, we may find ourselves being acutely present. And we like extremes. We like big, obvious extremes. I think we're almost addictive, addictively uh, liking of them. We're, we're extreme experience junkies, most of us. Because, I think the reason is because they bring us into the present moment. We feel alive in that moment. Can we be so acutely present? Can we be so acutely in the present moment in our ordinary lives, our more everyday extremes, such as waking up out of sleep in the morning? eating a meal with all of its different tastes and all of the changes that the food and our body and our mind goes through in the process of eating, having a cold, taking a bath or a shower, growing old. The beginning of a breath, all the way through the middle to the end of a breath even the possibility of presence like my friend in Taos, presence in our dying. Can we be free? Can we be acutely present in the ordinary extreme aspects of our life? Can we be so alive at any given moment just simply present and not holding on to some imagined or elaborated or wished-for experience? Can we be so present, which actually translates into being alive, fully, equanimously alive? I think that this is the, the very best we can offer ourselves and the very best we can offer the world. Freedom can happen in the most difficult the most pleasant, 
the most wonderful, the most ordinary circumstances of our life, in any moment, in one clear moment of mindful presence, there's the possibility of the deepest, clearest wisdom arising. And as I said this morning, this seemingly magic of mindfulness takes us out of the illusion, out of the delusion, directly into the reality, the reality of freedom from suffering. I'd like to close the talk with a poem. It's called Hokusai Says. Hokusai uh, was the Japanese painter who painted the big, huge wave. I think, as I'm saying this now, I think I read this in this retreat once before, but it's a wonderful poem. (laughs) So I read it again if I did read it once before. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck. Accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. He says, everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. Let's sit together for just a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.